A number of you asked me whether we could, you know, because you wanted to mark this and you weren't prepared last Sunday. Seriously, I was asked, could we take up an offering at the end of this service uh, so that those of you who have come prepared can do that? I know that there's actually, I'm, I'm very touched by the amount of excitement there is about this whole vision to buy the, the warehouse opposite. And uh, so we will take an offering up at the end of the service. If you haven't got one of these packs, I, I expect you all have now, but if you haven't, there are some down at the front there. There's also some in the rack by the door. Out. That, that will give you an idea of what we're, we're doing, and i um, very excited about that. And um, I, think, I, I think God uh, and the admin office uh, took pity on me on April Fool's Day after this, this horrible, horrible prank because um, Karen came through to my office later on in the day and said, did you know, Chris, that over 100,000 pounds has already come in for this thing? I mean, you guys are flipping amazing. I mean, that is a stunning launch. Uh, to get into six figures was, was probably more than, than I, I actually imagined, but Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, Dennis, we've been saying it the last... Thank you. God is able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or think. So God bless you, those who've already come on board, and, and God bless you, uh, all of those of you who are yet to commit to that. Let's actually, let's just stop give thanks to God, because, I mean, really, seriously, we need to thank him. Father, we want to say thank you to you for all the, uh, for your great love and mercy and the vision, the challenge that you bring us, the comfort too. Uh, but also I want to say thank you for all those who have already bought into this, this grand um, adventure. Uh, and Lord God, thank you also for those with specialist gifts. Thank you for the lawyers who've said they want to represent us on a pro bono basis. The, the architects, the uh, commercial agents. It seems as if this vision of yours, Lord, is, is really gaining some traction. And, and Lord, it's just exciting to be caught up in something bigger than ourselves. So thank you for all that you have done, and thank you for all that you're going to do as we, as we seek to um, extend the kingdom and uh, get this property across the road in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, this Sunday, then, we begin our Easter service, and uh, our Easter series, I should say, and uh, it's got a, a, a title I have been itching to use for some time now, and this series is called The Good Confession. Uh, now, somebody actually during the week said to me, The Good Confession, where, where, did you, uh, you know, where did you get that name from or that title from? And I was feeling a bit mischievous after my horrible experience with Richard Gathard. Uh, I was feeling playful, and I said, Oh, it's the name of a pub in the New Forest, and, um, which it isn't. But I, they, they looked at me, and they kind of weren't sure whether I was joking or not. <laughs> But this little expression, this little phrase, actually comes from chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. And I was studying in 1 Timothy earlier on in the year, and I just thought, do you know what? There's a sermon series in there, The Good Confession. And uh, so we're going to explore that, and Dennis is up next week, uh, over the next two or three weeks, as we, as we look forward to, to Easter. So why, why don't we just get straight into the text then? Um, it'll come up on the screen, but if you brought your Bible with you, well done. If you've got a Blackberry or iPhone, anybody have Blackberries these days? They've just gone through the floor, haven't they? Nobody has a Blackberry these days. But, uh, oh, somebody put a hand up? Yeah, okay, God bless you. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> right, 
Yes, let's hear it for Blackberries, yay! No. Great. Um, so if you've got an iPhone or smartphone or something and you're following with that, great. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at, uh, we'll pick it up at verse 6 here. Let me just put my glasses on. Uh, Paul is mentoring young Timothy here, who he has really set, uh, set up to be, in some ways, his successor, although I'm not, we're not sure whether that really happened in quite that manner. And he's been giving him some practical advice about various church issues that Timothy is dealing with. Uh, there's been advice about the choosing of elders and leaders. There's been some advice about impropriety in the church, things going a bit wrong, a bit weird. There's been advice about doctrine and some doctrinal issues. Very practical. But then he begins to wind it up, and, and this is where we, we pick up the story, the, the, the narrative, as it were. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, and faith. Love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Hold, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in, in a unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Actually, I'm going to read on here. I know I haven't put it up there, but I just spotted something that's relevant here. Verse 17, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, this series is called The Good Confession. I want to un, you know, think about that for a moment, but I, I, I cannot resist but spend just a few minutes un, uh, unpacking uh, a few thoughts out of this passage here. Uh, first of all, verse 6, back at the beginning there, godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say that this has been uh, one of the great challenges of my own life, and I think in one sense I am very much a, a product of uh, the age in which we live. You know, I was brought up to always be aspiring to better myself. 
And certainly my early days when I went into business, it was all about bettering myself. And in fact, what was also drummed into me, which is not, uh, was a little unusual, was I wasn't to depend on anybody. I, I was to you know, provide for my family, and it was, I was greatly encouraged to start my own business. You know, be your own boss and build your own business. And one of my, one of my, uh, my, my father-in-law had this great thing, a lovely man, but he, he, he uh, there's something very virtuous about it. He was all into creating wealth. He said, if you create wealth, if you devote yourself to creating wealth, not only do, will you feed your family and, and, and improve their lot, but you will, give, you, you will create jobs and, and, and prosperity for others. He had this great thing about, is it create, are, you create, are you adding value? I think probably that's the sort of thing we'd say today. So I was raised in all of that. And of course, that, that fuels the kind of consumerism that we find ourselves in. You know, we always want a bigger house or a better car or our kids to go to a better school than we did or a better university or a better whatever it is. And it's always, you know, on and on and up. And that is, is there's nothing wrong with it per se, but it's actually, if, if you're not careful, very contrary to, to the, 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 the essence of the gospel. Because what the gospel wants to say to us when it comes to the way we do our life is, you know, do what you have to do. You know, Paul did what he had to do. When he, when he had to, he was a tent maker, you know. Do what you have to do. But, but may the best of you, the best of yourself, your time, your energy, even your money, may the best of you be invested in the kingdom. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this other stuff will be added unto you. And we've kind of got that skewed around a bit, you know, so that, you know, there's nothing wrong in trying to provide for your family. God knows, you know, I've got four adult kids and four grandkids, and I hope I've done right by them on that front. But if we're not careful, this thing can get switched around, and, and suddenly it's the cart that's driving the horse rather than the, the, the horse pulling the cart, you know. So there's a little thing there. Godliness with contentment, and contentment should be a goal. And it's not something you hear very much about these days. It really isn't. And, and there's, there's something to think through and maybe pray through in this, this season in, as we run up to, to Easter that you might like to take away, and that might be the one thing that you want to take away today. But let me pull out one or two other things. I love this little thing, verse 11 here. It says, but you, man of God, flee from all of this, all this kind of striving for the wrong things, things that aren't going to lead to eternal life. Flee from it and instead pursue the things that will lead to life, righteousness, faith, love, holiness, etc. You know, it, it's not, faith is not a passive thing. And that's another thing that, that is really deeply embedded in, in, in uh, Western culture, that faith is something private, something personal, uh, something that you carry inside and, and you know, it's something that you cherish. It's like a little secret place that you go to. Uh, uh, but, but actually, it's nothing to do with what's out there. It's a, this is a very private thing. You know, there seems to be almost, in some circles, a sense that that's virtuous. That that's a good thing to keep it private, keep it personal, you know, don't sort of rock the boat. The truth of the matter is that our forebears lost their lives for this faith. They shed their blood for it so that you and I could come on a Sunday morning, eat donuts, drink coffee, meet one another, and worship God. They, they laid their lives down for that. This faith is something that should be contended for. It's something that is something worth fighting for. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this whole idea that, that you know, that, that Paul is wanting to really impress upon Timothy. He, he says, you know, flee from these things, run away from them. You know, these things that are going to ensnare you and hold you back. But instead, use that energy, not to just run aimlessly, waving your arms around in the air, but, you know, press on in to take hold of Christ, take hold of the kingdom, take hold of his righteousness. You know, use that energy in that regard. So these are great little pointers in this, this season, in the run-up to, to Easter. One or two other little things I'll just throw here. The purpose, the goal in all of this in verse 12, it says, take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. And um, uh, I, I, I don't think it's taking liberties with the word to say that, you know, in, in many a battle in days of yore, um, there was a bannerman. And it was actually a high, highly honored position. And, and you would hold the banner of the regiment or the banner of the, 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 the army or the nation even. And, and that, it was the colors. It was, it was a, 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 you know, and the colors should never be allowed to touch the ground. They should never be allowed to be captured. You would give your life in keeping hold of, of the banner. And, and in fact, to this day, if you go into Westminster Abbey and if you look up, there's loads of sort of threadbare, moth-eaten, raggy old things hanging up there in the rafters. And, and these are regimental banners and, and banners from campaigns and things. High honor. And there is a sense in this passage where Paul is saying, fight the good fight, you know, press on it, and take hold of the banner. Take hold of this banner that is eternal life. Fight through, you know, press on through. Take hold of it and then never let go. And so it's not just a case of Paul saying to Timothy, be good. Come on, play nicely. Be good. There's, there's a fight going on, a battle going on, and it's something worth fighting for and exerting ourselves for. So this is all sort of background to all of this. And then we have this good confession thing, which, is, which most commentators agree is a reference to Timothy's baptism. Now, many of you were at our baptisms just before Christmas. We had this thing which we, we called a big baptism, and we had two pools going. It was uh, in the evening. It went on for a couple of hours, and we had a whole ton of people baptized. And in case you're wondering... We're going to do a little baptism in the middle of a baptism service in the, in the summer. Um, because a number of you are keen to get baptized, people are always coming to Christ here, which is such a joy. Uh, but we, we are actually thinking, and then we'll, after, after the summer, we'll save them all up so that we can have another big baptism because it was an amazing... Who was at that big baptism service? Maybe a third of you. Boy, I mean, guys, that was just phenomenal, wasn't it? It absolutely was. Just so you really need to, when we do that, you come along, bring your friends. It was just awesome. I think we baptized over 60 people. I know, uh, 69 was it? Yeah. It was just incredible. It was such joy, you know, fabulous. Anyway, so this, this good confession thing, it's generally thought to be uh, a reference to Timothy's own baptism uh, and, and, you know, the sort of confessional aspects of that. Now, I should say at this point that when we talk about the good confession or confession in this context, we're not actually talking about, you know, sin and repentance. We're not talking about, you know, doing a good job of repenting of your sins and, 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 and you know, you could be forgiven for believing that. I mean, this is 
a season that we're in that many in the church talk about as being Lent, and it's a time for fasting and prayer and, and, and quiet reflection, and, and you know, that's, that's you know, very useful. But I'm not actually talking about that. This good confession is where one breaks cover, if you like, where one actually speaks out, instead of keeping it private and personal, where you actually affirm the faith, where you actually speak out and say, Jesus is Lord, where, you, where you're willing to take the aggravation. You know, and Timothy, bless his heart, he's, he's, you know, he's having some tough challenges, which is why Paul is mentoring him and coaching him as he deals with you know, this burgeoning Christian uh, movement. And so he's having some challenges, but he's standing firm. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he is a Christian, he's a follower of Christ, and he's sticking up for what he believes. It's an active thing, not a passive thing. And so Paul affirms him in that. But then he goes on to say an interesting thing. He goes on to say, uh, verse 13, I believe it is, he says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus, you know, you're make, you're, we're working out our lives, we're, we're living our lives, we're doing our faith, not just, you know, in the sight of our family and friends and colleagues at work, but actually we have heavenly witness, God himself, and even Christ Jesus himself, who made his own good confession when he faced that great trial, uh, uh, which we will be thinking more about in the next two, well, two weeks. But uh, Jesus Christ made that confession. And uh, I, I want us just to re- reflect for a moment on the person of Jesus. And uh, this week, uh, this little film clip, as so often happens, came across my desk. And I just, we're just going to watch it together. It's a little sort of um, video clip. And it's a collage of aspects of Jesus' ministry. It just lasts a couple of minutes, but it'll help me transition into the last and main point that I want to make this morning. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? It's wonderful, isn't it? You know, God bless, you know, our creative guys. And there's a wonderful video that's just about to come up on our website, which, which our guys have produced um, about the restore ministry. It's a testimony. It's absolutely fabulous. You know, that God uses so many great gifts and skills to communicate the gospel. What I loved about that, that passage was, um, for some of you, you will have just seen it and watched it as, as it is. But for many of you, you will have recognized little scenes from a whole variety of different aspects of Jesus' ministry. And it, I, I found myself um, reflecting upon that when I was watching it, and just watching it in, you know, on my laptop in my office, and, and I, was, I was moved by it. I really was. And, and you see Jesus uh, you know, in so many aspects of his ministry there. You see him as a healer. You see him as as a provider, you know, the loaves and the bread. You, you see him as the Lord of creation, stilling the storm. You know, you see him as a teacher. You see him as a prophet. You see him as so many things, and of course, as a savior. And that led me thinking in the context of this sermon series, the good confession, and of course, the way Jesus li- lived his life and how authentic 
his life was and how consistent his life was. It, it led me to reflect upon my own good confession, and I hope it is that. And that's really what I want to both comfort and challenge you about today as a, as a sort of a run into this little series. And so just um, turn with me, if you, if you will, back to Matthew's gospel, little passage here, and then I'll, I'll land on this for my remaining time. Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 13 and Jesus and the guys, that's the disciples, are, are in a, a neck of the woods which he visited on a number of occasions. Uh, and they're walking along the road, and, and, and this conversation develops. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Good question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who is Jesus? Who, who is he to me? Who, who is he to us? Good question. And they replied, they, they weren't slow to reply as far as we can tell. They replied, some say John the Baptist. You know, some saw him as a herald bringing in the kingdom of God. Uh, some saw him as this kind of radical leader in the desert, you know, calling people out of the city to join him. Thank you. That was a radical herald calling out, I think, or something. It then says, uh, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Elijah, of course, an absolutely monumental hero of the Jewish faith. Elijah was probably, of all the prophets, the supreme prophet. He was the dude, the man. And he was the one used of God who ultimately didn't end too well in one sense. He kind of didn't lose faith, but he just lost energy. He lost, he lost his way there, and God had to intervene. But, but Elijah, this great hero of the faith, and actually Elijah himself was was part of a prof prophetic sense that, and, and word that Elijah was going to come again before the kingdom of God arrived. So some were saying, Elijah, yeah, Elijah's come. You know, the kingdom of God's about to break in upon us. Elijah is here. That's who you are. That's what they're saying about you, Jesus. It goes on. It says, still others of the disciples said, Jeremiah. Interesting, another great prophet, almost as mighty in a sense as Elijah, but the prophet of the exile, the prophet who spoke to Israel when they were taken off into captivity. And of course, in this context, you know, captivity had come to them in the form of the Romans, and they were a, a vassal nation now, and they, they had no rule. They were, it was an occupied territory, and they were part of the Roman sort of uh, you know, empire. And so some saw him as a prophet speaking into that who was going to you know, help lead Israel out of the, the, the situation that they found them, the, the oppression that they found themselves under the Romans at that time. And they were sort of tying him into that. Lots of conversation, lots of theories. You know, they weren't short of ideas. People were coming up with, who is this Jesus? They all had their own theories. And then it says, it says, you know, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets, you know, and there were a fair few to choose from. That was what was going around. 
But they hadn't really got, you know, Jesus wanted to press the conversation further. Verse 15, and Jesus says to them, he says, but what about you? You, my, my close friends and associates, my disciples. What about you? <laughs> you know, you've been with me now for 18 months or so. We've been through a lot together. We've had some great times, haven't we? We've had some hilarious times. We've had some difficult times. We've had some times when we've had to sort of slip away, you know, for fear of our lives. You've been through a lot. We've been through a lot. You've heard what I've taught. You've seen the healings. You've seen the miracles. Who do you say I am? What do you think? I wonder what happened in that moment. They'd had lots, of, lots to say when it was generalized. You know, who do people say? But what are you? Was there a bit of kind of shuffling of feet and looking at toes and sort of coughing? And, or were they straight in there? We don't know yet. But we do know that Peter, so often the spokesman in these moments, he did speak up. Who do you say I am? What is your confession? And Peter said this, verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And the Messiah, many of you will know, but perhaps not all of you. The Messiah, I'm going to have to be careful how I, how I put this, but the Messiah was almost, was almost like a mythical beast, like a unicorn. I have to be careful with how I stress that. But the Messiah was an individual who God was going to send to deliver Israel, and not just deliver Israel, but he was going to be you know, a great king, and he was going to establish Israel as the most preeminent power. He was going to be a, a king, not just like, not, not even like Solomon, who was a great king, a very sort of, you know, David and Solomon, and Solomon's reign in particular, you know, brought tremendous wealth and influence to, to Israel in that, in that age. But, but this king, this Messiah, you know, his kingdom was going to eclipse that kingdom, that kingdom of Solomon, where without any shadow of a doubt, Israel was top dog. Not Rome, but Israel. This, this, is, this Messiah was going to you know, bring in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it says in Matthew's gospel. This Messiah was going to be a friend of the children, a friend to widows. Of, you know, it was almost impossible, the list of great things that were going to happen when the Messiah came. But as so often happens with these kind of... And it wasn't mythical. That's why I have to be careful. It, wasn't a, it, was, it was a firm prophecy that the Messiah would come. But when things are so bad and so tough... Human nature is such, you tend to sort of, you know, you put your hope in these characters, but they're always almost here, but not here. But Peter, he makes a good confession. He says something shattering. He says, you are the Messiah. Wow. You are the Messiah. 
And no one chooses to disagree. And that's not all. He actually tops that, if topping that were possible. But he tops that. He says, the son of the living God. You are God's son. This humble carpenter, this guy they'd flogged around through you know, byway and highway, dusty lane and all the rest of it, been through all sorts of adventures, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them indifferent. They'd seen him at his worst. They'd seen him at his best. They'd seen him so dog-tired that he fell asleep in the bow of a boat when a storm was breaking. He was absolutely shattered. They'd seen him at his worst. They'd seen him at his best. And after all of that, after all of that, Peter is able to say, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow! Phenomenal. That, my friends, is a good confession. And it leaves me with a question. You know, I, I watched that video and I'm moved by it, and I am, I loved watching it then again. And I see Jesus in his many aspects and his many, you know, dimensions of his ministry. And, you know, I've been walking with Jesus now for 30 years and some. And, you know, I, I, I like to think I've got to know him, and I think it's fair to say I have got to know him, and I've seen him do so many things and I know that what he is to me is very complex and meets me at all sorts of levels you know he's the elder brother I never had he's the father who died young he's the father that and so on and so forth so many he's made up so much of the uh, the need in me for which I'm I will be eternally grateful and yet, my experience does not define who he is. He is more than that. He is more than a friend. That's the title of one of the songs that we sing from time to time, a lovely song. He is who he is. And he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God himself, one of, part of the Trinity. And so the question I ask myself as I reflect, taking on, if you like, a little bit of that Lenten mantle, and what I mean by that is, you know, as I said already, you know, the, much of the church uses Lent to reflect upon their experience of God and their walk with God. As I enter into that a little bit for myself at this time, I ask myself the question again. I look in the mirror and I say, Chris, who do you say Jesus is? And friends, this is probably the most important question you will ever answer. You know, uh, we've been running a few interviews for, for various jobs and positions that, that we have available in the church. And, you know, there are very important questions there. And, you know, the, the combination of them all may decide whether we hire somebody or not. You know, when we, you know, we, we, there are many times when there are important questions asked of us. But I, without any hesitation, say this to you, that whatever questions you have to face in your life and have faced in your life, this is a question that surpasses all other questions because based upon not just the words, but based upon the, the grasping of the fact that Jesus is more than a teacher and a friend, based upon your answer, that good confession that Jesus is God depends depends your eternal destiny 
Because once you begin to have it revealed to you, and I think there is an element of revelation in this, we need the Spirit's help to begin to, to understand, to catch a glimpse. And even here, if we were to spend time looking at this story of Peter's you know, good confession, we, we realize that very shortly he blows it and gets it all pear-shaped, but for a moment there he has clarity. And in that moment, in that moment, he sees and knows and speaks forth the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is God himself, God from God. And in that, as we realize that, that God himself in Christ was hanging on the cross at Calvary, that God himself has paid for your sin and mine. So we break through, we enter into that profound mystery. We take hold of eternal life, which is what Paul was, was encouraging us to do because we recognize and realize that God himself has laid down his life for us. Just an extraordinary, profound, mind-boggling truth. He has done it. So, the good confession Others have made a good confession. What about you? Start with asking yourself this question. Who is Jesus, really? Who is Jesus to you? Whatever he has done for you or is about to do for you, there's more. There's more. And I believe the Holy Spirit stands in our midst inviting us to press on in to flee from the stuff, the worldly concerns, the aggravations and all the rest. Yet deal, take care of business, but press on to take hold of Christ who's died for us. Why don't we just pray and then have the worship team come up. Thank you. Could we stand? Let's just pray together. Holy Spirit, I want to say thank you to you because you open up God's word to us and I trust and hope and pray that you've done that with us today. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal to us more of Jesus and that Jesus, you would be our Lord, not just in some, the line of some song, well written and musical that it may be, Lord God. May you be our Lord. May you be our Messiah. May you be our Savior. May you be our God. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We're going to take up that offering during this song. So if you're on the end of a row, would you mind just looking down and passing that?